First Samuel chapter 11, verse 3, where the elders of Jabesh are saying unto Nahash, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers unto all the coasts of Israel, and then, if there be no man to save us, we will come out to thee. I particularly want to highlight the words, If there be no man to save us. This word save is a key word in this chapter. Similar word, verse 9. Tomorrow by that time the sun be hot, ye shall have help. And that word is salvation, from which the name of Jesus comes. Salvation, ye shall have salvation. And then there at the end of verse 13, Saul said, Today the Lord hath wrought salvation in Israel. So that's the great need of Jabesh Gilead, to be saved. But the question is, is there a man to save them? Is there someone who's able to deliver them? Now last week we looked at the rise of this man Nahash, the king of the Ammonites. We saw that he has besieged Jabesh, he surrounded it. Looks like they have no hope. Israel, you will remember, is under another threat as well. The Philistines, they're threatening them at the west of Jordan. And now on the east, there is the Ammonite threat. And so far, that threat has been advancing very successfully. We know from non-biblical sources that Nahash has been unstoppable in the east that some cities have already fallen to him. And when he conquers those cities, he gouges out the right eyes of the men of Israel. And Jabesh Gilead is his next city. He chooses this because it is the last stronghold in the southeast of Israel on the other side of the Jordan. And also into this city it seems that Thousands of Israelite soldiers from the east have holed themselves up. And so he wants to take this city as the last bastion in that part of the land. And probably also to use as a stepping stone as he advances further north or else advances across the Jordan to the west. So he's a major problem. For the people of God. We saw that this man has a name that means serpent. It's actually the word that's used to describe the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. He has that name. And so the Holy Spirit is pointing this out. That the one who seeks to destroy Israel is a serpent-like character. A Satan-like figure who is destructive who is malicious who is utterly cruel and God's people in Jabesh need to be delivered from his cruel hand and the key word 
is they need to be saved, delivered from the works of Nahash. And Jabesh Gilead know now they need a saviour. Now they didn't realise it at first. We saw that last week. They didn't realise it initially. But they came to see that. And every sinner needs to see that. They need to see that they need saved from the serpent. You can't make a league with him. You can't compromise with him. The sinner needs to see that they have to be delivered from Satan. Saved from sin and the devil. Now at first, as we saw, they endeavoured this foolish policy of making a league with the serpent. The men of Jabesh said, make a covenant with us. So no, no thought about the covenant of grace. No thought about the covenant of salvation. They want to make a covenant with the devil. They want to make a covenant with hell. With darkness. The foolishness of it. And the outcome of it we see in verse 2. Nahash the Ammonite answered them on this condition. Will I make a covenant with you that I may thrust out all your right eyes and lay it for reproach upon Israel. So this cruel king demands a cruel thing. The gouging out, literally the scooping out of the eyes out of the eye socket. The eyeball scooped out of the right eye. The text gives us one reason why he would want to do this. He wants to lay a reproach upon all Israel. He wants to glorify himself and to gloat and to humiliate not, not just Jabesh, but to humiliate the whole of the land, the whole of Israel. Half blinding the men of the city would bring a reproach and make Israel look weak before him. And the second reason, of course, is that it would make the men incapable of effective warfare again. A man with one less eye is handicapped greatly in his warfare because the use of the shield and the sword requires both eyes because you cover one side with the shield and so you'd be handicapped. And also the archery, the archers would be handicapped as well with, the, with their perception of distance and taking aim and all of that. And he doesn't make them totally blind because he wants to make them slaves to work, to bring in the taxes, to harvest the fields, to make him rich. So he doesn't totally blind them, but he wants to make them ineffective to stand against him at another time should it arise. So this is the thinking behind all of this. Very shrewd, wickedly shrewd. And Satan is like that. The devil doesn't totally blame people. He only spiritually blames people. He lets people see a whole lot of other things that will keep them as slaves, that will make him his 
of servants. He'll not blind them to the lust of the eye and of the flesh and all of that. No, he only blinds them to eternal things. He only blinds them to the weapons of the true spiritual warfare against God. He blinds them to the use of the spiritual sword and to the use of the spiritual prayer. Whenever we talk about the God of this man, this world blinding men, we have to realize it is in regard to those things that he blinds them. Sinners can see very much. That's the problem, they see too much. What the devil wants them to see. And so the devil, he's like that. And, and he wants to humiliate the people of God. It's not enough just to conquer them. Not enough to overcome them and subdue them. He has to scoop out their eyes. He has to humiliate them. has to belittle them. has to make them to feel humiliated. He wants to bring reproach on God and reproach on the church by getting God's people to sin and to bring them down. He wants to bring the whole reproach on the whole church. That's how he works. Not just aiming at the believer, at you, to get you to sin, to get you down. No, he's aiming at us to get a blight on the whole church. On the whole church. He's a big picture, the devil. He's great vision, you know. And so he wants to do that and he wants to take our ability to stand effectively against him. To take away the weapons of warfare and our ability to use them effectually against him. And so he, he, he blinds in one eye the people of God. He can't blind the people of God fully. He can't blind the people of God completely because the Lord has enlightened them. But he can bring partial blindness to them again. And so Jabesh is learning. You can't make a covenant with hell. It's costly. You can't compromise with Satan or his agents. You can't make a league with the devil. You can't have an agreement with the wicked one or with the wicked. You can't. It only leads to greater misery. That's all. Here we have the mercies of the serpent. Here we have what the devil will give sinners prepared to serve him. This is how the devil treats his prisoners, his slaves. The tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. We see that in this chapter. Yes, he let them live away. Yes, he'll spare them for a while. But there's a cost. Serving sin and Satan is costly business congregation. Sinners without a saviour under Satan's power have no life at all. They're in bondage. Cruel bondage. They're under a tan, under a cruel master. What did the Lord call the bondage of Egypt? Cruel bondage. Sinners are under cruel bondage. Consider those without a saviour congregation and what they're under. Visit the prisons to see what they're like. To see what misery they have brought upon themselves. Visit the hospitals at the weekend. Go and work in a police station. In the heart of some inner city for a week. And see what Satan does. And see the misery of homes. And of parts of society. Join, join a busy psychiatrist. 
or a busy social worker working with all the problems in society, all the people who have problems, go into the inner cities, go and sit at the entrance of any high-rise block for a week in some dark part of the inner city, the poorest part where all the crime is, if you could survive sitting there for a week. See the multitudes of children that need fostered and cared for because of drug addicted or drunken parents or in other vices. Christians, you know, in Christian homes have no idea of the misery of multitudes around us. But people are in misery whenever they are the servants of such a cruel master as this. Their rock Whatever their God is, or the, the, their master, the devil, their rock is not as our rock. Even our enemies themselves know that, as the Bible says. Their vein is the vein of Sodom, and of the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall. That's what they're feeding at, that's what they have. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of dragons, and the cruel venom of asps. That's what they get at their master's hand. In verse 3 here, we see that Jabesh learned their folly. It has sunk in. Making a league with the serpent is foolishness. And so the elders say unto him, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers unto all the coasts of Israel, and then, if there be no man to save us, we will come out to thee. So they're trying to buy time. Seven days they think is sufficient. Or they hope is sufficient. So they're thinking now about a saviour. They're thinking now about a man. If there be a man to save us. They're thinking about a deliverer. But they need time to find him. But they're thinking right. They're thinking in the right direction. They're going in the right way of getting a saviour. Now they don't tell Nahash everything. They pull the wool over the devil's eyes. Uh, and they say, give us seven days that we may send messengers unto all the coasts of Israel. As if to say, well, it's going to be hard for us to find a man. We're going to have to send messengers all over the place. The whole length and breadth of the land, all over the place. And Nahash is thinking, well, that's going to take more than seven days. They're not going to find a saviour. But they know where they're going to go to. Saul said, Gibeah Saul. They know where they're going. But they don't tell Nahash that. They're keeping it undercover. This verse seems strange that Nahash would permit this. It's safer to refuse and to commence the assault without delay. But he doesn't want to lose men. And he's thinking, well, it's only seven days. And so he's open to that suggestion. And it's really because of his pride and arrogance, because he just despises Israel. He thinks they're as weak as, as ice cream and they'll soon melt away. And he doesn't think anybody will come and help Jabesh. He doesn't think there's a saviour at all. No saviour, no deliverer, no one stronger than him. He's, he's proud, he's, he's arrogant, he gets self-confident yeah, seven days, okay, there you go have it he hopes to make himself even more glorious and he probably doesn't forget 
that Jabesh was the one city that refused to go out in the defense of Israel on another time way back in the past. Because there was a draft sent out to all the cities of Israel to come to the defense of Israel and Jabesh city, Gilead, was the one city that refused. They wouldn't come. They wouldn't obey the draft. Nahash probably knows that. They're going to ask Israel to be drafted to their defense whenever they wouldn't be drafted for Israel's defense. He probably thinks there's not a soul to save them. He's forgetting God. This is why he gives them seven days in his pride and arrogance. You know, Satan thinks like that too, you know. He just thinks we're easy prey. Walk over. You know, the, the wee church, sir, they're just a walk over. Nothing, nobody. Even the devil can let down his guard. But anyway, the thing is about these men, they're seeking a saviour now. They're looking a deliverer. It's a good start when the sinner is looking at the deliverer. When the sinner realizes we need a saviour and they start looking. Don't we wish that many were like that? There is one that they do look to. Who's that? Well, verse 4, the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul. They came to the right place. They were sent to the right place. Jabesh has gone to the right place. They go to where the newly anointed one is found. Now I remind you chapter 10 is the chapter of the newly anointed one. Saul. A Messiah figure. The anointed king. Israel's first. And what is the main function of a Messiah figure? What is the main function of an anointed king? Well, there are many functions, no doubt, of kings. But the main one is, and it stands out, the main one of the kings of Israel is salvation. Kings bring deliverance to their people. Kings bring salvation and save them from all their foes and enemies. And Israel had this in God. God was their king. The Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. He's the king who saves them. The Lord. That is why Israel's looking at king was very grievous to God. I'm your king. I saved you. Why are you looking at king? Like the nations. Why are you looking at another king? It was a rejection of him. It was a looking to man to save. And that's why Samuel said, even in chapter 10 he told them it, when he was anointing their new king, he says, this day you've rejected your God, who himself saved you out of all your adversities and your tribulations, and you have said, nay, but we want a king over us. You see, God's planning to send his son to be the king. That's God's plan. They have to wait. A true divine saviour. One God and king in Jesus Christ. He is Jesus, 
the king of glory to save his people and to come amongst them as their king to redeem them even by his own blood. That's God's plan. But Israel cannot wait God's plan. They want a king now. And God condescended to give them their will, their wish. And in doing so, he will teach them much throughout the ages that they have their king. Throughout the redemptive history, whenever they have all these monarchs. And also at the same time, he will give them a typical office. An office that will foreshadow and predict the true king. The one who will come in God's plan at time. God will allow all of this to foreshadow and prefigure and predict the coming king. So that's what this is all about. Prefiguring, foreshadowing, God allowing it. And at the same time, disciplining Israel and teaching Israel about all these earthly kings and the effectiveness that they really come to at the end of the day, which is nothing. And the true king they must look for. So he gives them a typical office. And the first one to foreshadow that is Saul. And the next one after that is David. And David was told himself that Israel's true and ultimate king would actually come of his seed. But that's another story that we come to in time. The Son of God would become the Son of David. The true King of Israel. Well anyway, salvation, deliverance is the main work of kings. And they're looked to for that. And that's why God raised up Saul. He said to Samuel, tomorrow I'll send you a man out of the land of Benjamin for Samuel 9 verse 16. You'll anoint him. He'll be captain over my people Israel that he may save my people. That he may save my people. He's going to be a savior, Saul. He's to save my people because God wants him to prefigure Christ, the true king and what the king does. And how did chapter 10 finish? I remind you the previous chapter. Saul went home to Gibeah. There went with him a band of men whose hearts God had touched. But there were others. And they said, How shall this man save us? There's that word again, salvation, saving. At the end of chapter 10, as we go into chapter 11, is there a man to save us? They say at the start of chapter 11. At the end of chapter 10, they say, How can this man save us? How can he be the Savior? So you see how the Holy Spirit is focusing on this thought of a Savior King, a Deliverer King, a man anointed who comes and does it. It's not about Saul. It's about the true one who will take this office in the fullness of time. So Saul is God's man. Chosen of God and anointed. The question is, is he going to be able to rise up to be the saviour? Now he's gone back to the farming quite obviously in Gibeah. Maybe he's discouraged with the men of Belial who are saying, hey, how did this man save us? He's not promoting himself. He's not exalting himself. He's being humble. Are we humble farmer? 
He's not taking over and running the show because he's, he's been made king. No, he, he realizes there's a division and there's voices against him. So he goes back to the farming. And just, just a humble lad in the farming. Until providence changes. And God calls him by his mighty Holy Spirit. Because the Spirit of God came upon him, it says. Verse 6. The Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard those tidings. The Jabesh in danger. This cruelty of the serpent. And he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he rises up to be the serpent slayer. And so he has this plan. He chops up his own oxen and he sends them out to different parts of Israel. And he says, come and gather with me and we'll deliver Jabesh. And the fear of God comes on all Israel. And they all arise and there's over 300,000 people that come to war against the Ammonites. So salvation's coming now. And the message goes back to Jabesh. Before the sun be hot tomorrow, you shall have salvation. You shall have help. That's what the word means. And they weren't disappointed because Saul did come. He came with his soldiers, with his army, divided them into three and defeated the Ammonites and sent them away And that's the end of them. And then in verse 12, the people now in the throes of exaltation and glory, they say to Samuel, Who is he that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that that said this, and we'll put them to death. And look at the mercy and clemency of Saul. Saul said, There shall not be a man put to death this day. Not a man, not a man in Israel put to death. Why? For today the Lord hath wrought salvation. Salvation in Israel. No Israelite dies. None of the people of God die when God brings salvation to them. Saul prefigures Christ. I know some, some, some of the Bible men have problems with that. I know that. Uh, some of them would nearly fall off their seats if they heard a minister saying Saul's a type of, of the Savior. But we have to remember this is before he went wrong, before he went astray. You have to keep his future out of our mind. It's, it's what the people are seeing now when they look at this young man on the throne. And God is with him and you can't deny God is with him. God brought the deliverance. God used him. So Saul prefigures Christ. He's He's chosen. This is the man I've chosen, he says. He's anointed. He's endowed by the Spirit. And he actually saves Israel. Now I tell you, there's only one other king had all four of those things. Just David. The rest of them were just born by by generation. They weren't chosen. Probably a lot of them mightn't even have been anointed. We don't always read it. That was the case. I don't read that many of them were died by the Spirit, and a whole lot of them didn't even manage to save Israel at all. All four of these things coming together only met in Saul and David until Christ. And then they all met in him, preeminently and supremely. So Saul prefigures Christ. Saul destroys the serpent on his host. Saul crushes his head. 
Saul destroys the works of Nahash and reverses it all. Just as Christ was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Just as Christ came to spoil principalities and powers and make a show of them openly, triumphing over them in the humiliation of his cross. You know that Jesus destroyed him who had the power of death. The power of blindness. The power to cause men to tremble. He destroyed him who had that power, the devil. So there are qualities about Saul in these chapters that are Messiah-like. Humble. Hiding behind the stuff. Working in the fields as a king with his oxen. There is this Field work. Just as Jesus is humble, behold, your king is just. He's coming unto thee, having salvation. That's what he's carrying. That's what he is. He's the savior. He's the deliverer. Lowly. The lowly savior. Riding upon an ass. And Saul is concerned for the oppressed. This Nahash, as he besieges the city. And as he threatens to scoop out the eyes of the people of God, the mighty Holy Spirit comes upon him as he feels for the oppressed and he says he desires to be a deliverer of them. And he gets filled with zeal and gets fired up to get all Israel to go to their deliverance. He has a burden for the oppressed. He has a burden for those who are under the bondage of the serpent. He's concerned. And the Spirit of the Lord God comes upon him as he come upon Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Lord hath anointed me. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. How they must have been brokenhearted in Jabesh. He sent me, the Messiah, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to set them free, to open up the prisons. To set them free. To deliver them who are in the bondage and the blindness. And there is a self-sacrificing of Saul because he cuts up his oxen. He sends it all out. He says, this will be done to the man's own oxen. What I've done to my oxen, I'll do to every man's oxen who won't come out. And so he his farming instruments, his farming tools, they're all, they're all cut up. The sacrificing. And then he gives glory to God. Because we read there in verse 13, this day the Lord hath wrought salvation. He's not exalting himself, but he's giving glory to God, even as Messiah gave glory unto his Father. So there, there are amazing things here. We have to try to remember Saul's former days. We don't know how we will go in old age. And I think the Lord remembers former days. And maybe we should be a wee bit more merciful to people who maybe go astray in old age or get overrun with temptations and sore things that we ourselves would not be able to resist if we were in the same position. Judge not, 
that ye be not judged. So let's think of and remember Saul in this chapter. And how forgiving he is. How he shows kindness and clemency even to the sons of Belial. Those that Israel wanted to kill and to slay and condemn. But he wouldn't condemn. He spoke on their behalf and delivered them. Even his offenders. Just like the Lord. Remember how they brought the woman taken in adultery to the Lord? One of the stoner to death. And the Lord made them to feel ashamed. Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go in peace. He is a prefigurement of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the Holy Spirit in this scripture is setting up the kingship in such a way that shows salvation is the great business of the anointed one. It's the great business of the anointed one. Messiah, we know what his great business is. Thou shalt call his name Jesus. That's the word that's occurring here that we've drawn attention to. Yeshua, the salvation. You'll call his name salvation. You'll call his name Savior, Jesus. He'll save his people. Just as Saul saved Jabesh, he will save his people, not just from Satan, but from their sins, which even if there was no devil, would be a means of great bondage to us. He saves us from our sins. And that's the only salvation that we should be looking for. A salvation from our sins. The angel said, Unto you was born this day in the city of David a Savior. A Savior. And the people cried as he came riding in on his coat. The king as he came riding in just and lowly having salvation. What did they cry? Hosanna. What does that mean? Save. Save now, Lord. Save. Hosanna. Save. And he does save our Lord Jesus. Just as Jabez sent to Gibeah of Saul to the right place and to the Savior and were heard, so those of us and those of them who discover their misery, if they will but send to Jesus, if they but send to him at the right hand of God, if they but go, they shall not be disappointed. They shall find in him indeed a true Saviour, who will deliver them from the serpent and from sin, and bring them the salvation that they need and that they desire through him. Isn't it wonderful? We who have sent to Jesus, we who come to him, we who look to him, we who depend upon him, we can never be ashamed. We can never be disappointed. He will save us. All that believe on him are saved. You know, Jabesh, they never forgot this saviour of theirs. Not even when the times changed and things got bad. 
They never waned in their appreciation of Saul. They never waned in their devotion to him. And you know, whenever the Philistines invaded the land and came practically to the Jordan itself, and they overrun Saul and his sons and the Israelite army, and you know what they did? To, you know what they did to Saul? They abused his body, and they hung him up in the walls of Bethshah. Now, those of you who were on the trip to Israel, uh, whenever we made our way up to the north from the Dead Sea, it was pointed out Bethshah on our left on the way up. He was hung on the walls of Bethshan, overlooking the Jordan Valley. And Jabesh Gilead was just in sight there, up there in the hills of Gilead. And when those men of Jabesh heard that their Savior was hung on the wall, you know what they did? Some of them went down on a mission, crossed the River Jordan, went into the heart of the occupation of the enemy, and they creeped up to the walls of the city and they took down his body and the dead weight of his body they carried back to Jabesh to bury him there they never forgot him they never lost their devotion to him and if we have a saviour in Jesus Christ no matter how hard the times no matter how the times change no matter how difficult it is no matter even if our life is endangered, we shall never wane in our devotion to such a Savior. Let us not wane in our love to him who loved us and who gave himself for us. Our Lord and Savior, our saving God, Jesus Christ. To him be all glory and the Father who sent him and the Holy Spirit who increasingly makes him Majestic in our eyes.